When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, they obviously gained knowledge of good and evil. But what does that mean? Does that mean that before they ate of the tree, they didn't know right from wrong? Well, no, they, they had to know right from wrong. They knew that eating from the tree was wrong and that not eating them from the tree and doing God's commandment was right. So that means that whatever the definition of good and evil is, it has to be something more than just right or wrong or, or any of our other subjective definitions. So we are going to talk about the true definition of good and evil and how it impacted Adam and Eve and how it impacts us, um, how, how it has and will impact us um, in the past and in the future on this week's episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find the blog and the podcast, a ton of great information. And of course, you will find this very podcast because that's where you're listening. Faithbyreason.net. Please subscribe. Uh, follow me on social media. So um, we are continuing our discussion of some of the terms and concepts that have come out of the, our study of the first dispensation of Adam and Eve and of the Eden narrative. So far, we have talked about justification and the worst form of justification, which is religion. Uh, we've also talked in the last couple podcasts about life and death um, as part of the, the tree of, the, uh, of life. And of course, we, so we, since the tree of life brings life, we wanted to discuss what life and its opposite death mean. And now we're going to study the second tree, and that is the most infamous tree in history, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is good and what is evil? Obviously, whatever it is, Adam and Eve did not have knowledge of it before they ate of that tree. And because they gained, in, in addition to gaining death, unfortunately, they did gain a knowledge of good and evil. So what does good and evil actually mean? What are the, the true definitions of good and evil? So if you were to ask the average person or even ask yourself, what is good or, or what is the definition of good? You would say that something is good if it's if it's beneficial, if it benefits you, if it benefits society, if it benefits the world, then it's good. It's beneficial. And on the other hand, evil is something which have to be the opposite. If it doesn't benefit, it harms. So evil is something that is harmful to you, to society, to the world in general. So what's good is beneficial and what's evil is harmful, Right. Well, there's a problem with that. And, and the problem with it is that that definition is extremely subjective because what's good or beneficial to you may not be good or beneficial to someone else. What is evil to you, what's harmful to you may not be harmful to someone else. I'll give you an example. Let's look at, at the archetype of evil. Whenever anyone thinks of evil and want to compare someone to evil, what do, they, what do they bring up? They bring up Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. They are always evil. They are never good. They are the bad guys. If you want to say someone is the ultimate evil, you say he's he's the next Hitler. If you want to say some politician is the worst ever, well, he's that guy. He's another Hitler. Or if you want to say some organization is evil, then they're just a bunch of Nazis. But the problem is that Hitler didn't think he was evil. I mean, it's a subjective definition. It's we in the West and probably most of the world think that Hitler was evil, but did Hitler? He didn't think he was evil. Neither did the Nazis. Hitler wasn't sitting in his room at the Reichstag twirling his little push broom mustache saying, I am so evil. I will do terrible things to the Jews. No, he thought he was good. Hitler thought that what he was doing was beneficial. He thought that the Third Reich that he wanted to usher in was good for us. It was good. He thought it was good for the planet. He thought that his Nazi party was actually going to do something that was beneficial. 
um, and and all of his followers. The Nazis thought that what they were doing were beneficial. You know, um, Adolf Eichmann and and uh, Heinrich Himmler. Those all those guys, every all the brown shirts, they thought that what they were doing was the best thing for the world. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. No one goes out and intentionally tries to be evil. We do what we think is going to be beneficial, and others may see it as evil, and that's what happened with Hitler. Obviously, what Hitler was doing was not beneficial. It was evil, but he didn't think he was evil. And you can take that example to a lot of folks. I mean, a lot of folks we think are evil say drug dealers. They don't think they're evil. I mean, I've been watching this show recently called uh, Narcos, great show on Netflix. Uh, you know, not because they're great people necessarily, but it's a great story. It's a story of you know Pablo Escobar, the great. Um, I say great, meaning he was just the biggest, you know, a, a cocaine uh, distributor in the world, and followed by the Cali cartel. He didn't think he was a bad guy, even though he was selling stuff that was you know getting people addicted and you know destroying lives. He thought he was a good guy, from his perspective. So if good is beneficial from our perspective, then we can't say anyone is evil because no one thinks they're evil. Yet we would say that there are definitely some people, Hitler, Escobar, et al., are evil folks. So the problem is that's a subjective definition. And any definition that is subjective, we can't. We have to throw it out because we need objective and, more importantly, non-contradictory definitions. So where do we go to get a objective, non-contradictory definition of good and evil? Well, we need to go to the source of truth. And fortunately, as we have learned over these uh, several blogs, I think you look at, I think, blogs six, seven, and eight, we know that the word of God, the Bible, the Judeo-Christian Bible is true. If you doubt that, you can go back to those podcasts or look at the series on the Bible on the blog. And I've, I've, you know, gave some pretty objective proof there that the Bible is from this, from a source of perfect information. So we need to go to the Bible to find out the definition of good. And what we want to do is look at the very, we don't have to go very far in the Bible to look at, to find the word good. It's actually in the first chapter of the first book. It's in Genesis chapter one. And as we learned previously, there is something called the doctrine of expositional constancy. We talked about that in the series on the blog posts. I'm sorry, excuse me, in the podcast on love. And the doctrine of expositional constancy is a very fancy word that theologians, people who spend a ton of money to get their PhDs in theology, like to use because people with PhDs like to make up fancy words, fancy terms for stuff to make it feel like they got their money's worth when they got their PhD. But the, the doctrine of expositional constancy simply means that whenever something is mentioned and whenever a term is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, it is usually um, uh, definitive and, it, and that same definition will be repeatable throughout the Bible. So when we look at the first instance of, of love, it happens very early in the first chapter of Genesis when God said, let there be light or let light be more accurately. And he created the light and he said, what? Light was good. Awesome. And then the, that was Sunday. That was day one. Day two, Monday, he just separated the light from the darkness. And that's the only day of the week that he didn't proclaim something was good. And that's because, well, nobody likes Mondays. But then you go to the next day, he uh, brings forth the dry land and God says, that's good. And he brings forth, you know, grass and herbs and trees. And he says, that's good that he creates that and that's good. And he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And that's good. And he creates animal life and that's good. And he creates man and woman. And that's very good. So we see the word good pop up several times in Genesis 1. And each time it, he says that he, he associates it very closely with creation. So let's just say, using the doctrine of expositional constancy, that good is tied very closely to creation. So let's say our working definition for right now of good is that good is that which creates. 
And that definition works very, very well throughout the Bible. If you look everywhere in the Bible where you see the word good and then plug in create or that which creates, you will find that that definition fits pretty well. So again, we'll make that our working definition. Good is that which creates. So then what is evil? Well, evil would have to be the opposite of good. If good is to create, then evil is destruction. Evil is that which destroys. So here it's, it's good to bring up the, the idea that evil, just like, say, darkness and cold and chaos, actually doesn't exist on its own. It's the measurement of the absence of something. We've talked about this a few times in the past. Darkness does not exist on its own. Darkness is a measurement of the absence of light. How do I know that? Because you can bring light into a dark room, but you cannot bring darkness into a lit room. You can't bring a ball of darkness into a, a, a room that's lit. Same thing with heat and cold. You can bring heat into a cold room, but you can't bring sustainably bring cold and generate cold in a warm room. You, you, you can't do it. Again, air conditioners and uh, refrigerators are things that actually they reduce the heat. They don't actually generate cold. That's what they do functionally. You can ask any engineer and they'll tell you the same thing. Chaos and order. You cannot have chaos without order first. Chaos is, is the measurement of the absence of order. Things can only be chaotic if they were orderly first. And evil and good are the same way. You cannot have destruction without something being created first. You can't destroy nothing. You can create out of nothing. And we talked about this in um, episode in uh, the podcast episodes 10 and 11, where it shows that you can create out of nothing. God did that because God is the first cause and there was nothing that existed before him. So you can create out of nothing, but you can't destroy out of nothing. You can't destroy nothing. Um, and that even if you're, and I know this by having a, a young child, I have a three-year-old right now. If you put him in a room by himself with nothing there, he can't destroy anything. Now, on the other hand, if you put him in a room with stuff, oh, he'll destroy the heck out of it. And he has no problem doing that. And that's one of our challenges. And I'm sure it's a challenge with of anyone who has a child that they, they love destroying things, but they can't destroy anything that's not there. You put them out there in, a, in, a, in an open field by themselves, then they can't destroy anything. You have to have created something first in order for it to be destroyed. So evil does not exist as its own thing. You need something, you need someone or something to create a thing first for evil to be able to destroy. And that's going to be really important when we get into the next podcast. And I'll give a preview of that at the end of this podcast. So creating things is good. Destroying things is evil. So, and we know God is good, which means God creates. I don't think anyone would argue with that. God is the creator and God creates, therefore God is good. But that brings up a bit of a scriptural problem because there is actually a passage in the Bible that says God does evil, that God actually destroys. That verse is Isaiah 45, I believe, uh, Chapter 45, verse 7, now I'll put it in the show notes, where it says that essentially God creates evil. And depending on the version of the of the translation you're reading, I'm reading from the American Standard Version. If you read from some other versions, it may say that, that God brings about destruction, which is basically the same thing. But it's saying that, that God does evil. God can destroy. Wait a minute. Isn't that a contradiction? And if that's a contradiction, that's a problem because good and evil are contradictory. Creation and destruction are absolutely contradictory. So if God is good, which means God creates, and then we say God destroys, well, that's a contradiction. And that's a big problem because we know contradictions cannot exist. And if God contradicts himself, then God can't exist. And that would be a really, really, really big problem for the Christian faith. 
So I think we need to look at what that means when it says God destroys. God can destroy, but he can, he'll destroy in the short term if it's for the long-term good. God's goal is the long-term good, long-term creation. But in order to do long-term creation, sometimes you need to have short-term destruction. So God can destroy in the short term if it means the long term will be creation. So we can do evil in the short term if it means that the good that, that it will result in long term good. I will give an example from a personal mentor of mine. And, and I say personal and because he's someone that you know I, I admire a great deal and I've learned a lot from, but he barely knows I exist. We've only met a couple of times. But um, he's been a, a great source of learning for me. His name is uh, Dr. Chuck Missler, and I've mentioned him before. He um, runs the, or he's, he's the, the leader of the Koinonia House or K House. You can go to uh, khouse.org, K H O U S E.org, and uh, look at his material. But um, the reason I admire him and the reason he's a mentor of mine is because he's a, he's a systematic thinker, he is a systematic engineer by trade, and he took that, in, that systematic engineering. Uh, uh, practice to the Bible, and that's something that I do as well. I'm not an engineer, but I'm all, but I'm a systematic thinker, and that's what I do in the blog and the podcast. And he really introduced me to the idea of, of, of putting the Bible under systematic analysis, and I appreciate that. Anyway, uh, Doctor Missler, he's 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 elderly now. He's in his I don't know 70s, 80s. I don't know exactly. Hopefully, he doesn't hear this and and get upset with me for misrepresenting his age. But he he's, he's up there in years, and. He is he's a full-time Bible teacher, but he was not always. He's only been doing full-time Bible teaching for the, the last half of his life. The first half of his life, he was actually a very successful businessman. Very successful. He was, he was a millionaire. Uh, he was a multimillionaire. And he did Bible teaching on the side. So he, was a, he did his business during weekdays and on the weekends. He would, do his, uh, his, he would do his Bible study. And he would teach the Bible at Calvary Chapel in California. But he will tell you the story that he actually lost everything. And he, he, and he will also tell you that it was from God. God destroyed his wealth. He wiped him out and he, he, he declared bankruptcy and he ended up moving to Idaho and going into ministry full time. And if you ask Chuck, he will tell you, he said so on the record in, in his many of his teachings that in his time in his life, he's never been poorer. He's never been, you know, he's never had less money, but he's never been happier. This is the happiest he's ever been in his life, even though all of his material wealth is gone. Well, most of it is gone. I mean, I'm sure he's not destitute, but he's not as rich as he was. But that makes sense because we know that the spiritual is far more important than the material. His his spiritual wealth is is, is much more important than the material wealth that he lost. And he again will tell you that even though he was very rich for a while, for you know for half of his life, he was not happy. His marriage was not happy. In fact, he and his wife were on the verge of getting a divorce because, you know, he was just never available. He was he was a hard driving, hard driving businessman and he was about to get divorced when you know, he made, a, so I guess, some bad uh, business moves and he lost everything. And that actually strengthened his marriage. You now they kind of they banded together, he and his wife, and they became stronger for it. And I've read a lot of his works, his wife's works, uh, Nancy Missler, who's who unfortunately has passed away. But. Um, she's helped her, her uh, books that she's written have helped me through some rough times, but all that happened only because God destroyed in the short term. He destroyed their wealth in the short term, but in the long term, it gave them full time ministry. So instead of having five days dedicated to his his um, his wealth producing business, he now has seven days where he's dedicating to 
to uh, accumulating spiritual wealth. And he will be the first to tell you that his spiritual wealth is far more important than his material wealth. God knew that as, as even though he was doing his, his part-time Christian teaching on the weekends as a hobby, that he would be much more profitable doing full-time ministry. And in order to get him there, God had to destroy in the short term. But the long term was creation. He, he caused him to create this amazing ministry that has blessed many millions of people, myself included. If God had not destroyed Chuck Missler's wealth, I would not have benefited. I am actually a beneficiary of the fact that God did short-term destruction. And there are tons of examples in our own lives. I'm sure if you look at your life, there are things that God has destroyed and that you were that you, you know cried over or, or despaired of when he did it. But then you look back at it and say, you know what, if God, if you hadn't destroyed that part of my life, I would not have benefited from it because I've, I've grown from it spiritually. There are tons of examples. There are all kinds of, of great men of God who, if you look at their lives, destruction happened. You look at Paul. Paul was a, the apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the top guy of the Pharisees and God had to knock him, literally knock him off his horse and, and virtually blind him and took away all of his reputation. But Paul is one of the greatest Christians of all time. He wrote more than half of the New Testament. That never would have happened if God hadn't destroyed his, his acclaim as a Pharisee. And again, tons of examples in your own life in a lot of great men of God. So in that, looking at that, I think we need to modify or rather expand our definition of good. Good is not just that which creates. It has to be that which creates in the long term, which might mean something that there's some destruction in the short term, but in the long term, it's what creates. So the definition of good, the full definition of good is that which creates in the long term. And similarly, we'll have to modify or and expand our definition of evil. Evil is not just that which destroys. Evil is that which destroys in the long term, which means that evil could have good in the short term, but the long term will be evil. And we look at, you know, God's opposite in, in for lack of a better term, and Satan. Just as God will destroy in the short term for the long term good, Satan will create or do good in the short term for long term for long term evil, long term destruction. And a good example of that is an affair. Let's say you're, you are married and you have an affair. You, you cheat on your husband or your wife. Well, in the short term, it seems good. Why? Because you're having sex and sex is good. And this is and the only people who don't think sex is good are religious people. That's just another of the many, many reasons why religion is horrible. Religion has taken a God-given beautiful thing in sex and turned it into something that we should be, think is dirty and we should avoid. And that's not the case. God created sex. He didn't make it by accident. He didn't make sex feel good um, on a whim or because he didn't mean to. No, God made sex feel good because he wanted us to do it. God thinks sex is awesome. And the only people, again, who don't think sex is awesome is our religious people, which is, again, one a really, really good reason not to be religious. But God made sex a good thing within the confines that he has has given forth. And if you do it outside of those confines, that short-term good, those really good feelings are going to be for long-term evil. And an affair is a, a very good example of that. Satan will tempt you to have an affair because it's going to feel good in the short term. That person, that man or woman you want to have the affair with, they're good looking, they make you feel good, and you get in bed with them. And for however many minutes you're in this sexual intercourse and into, that, into the sexual act, it feels good in the short term. But what are the long-term results? 
The long-term results are destruction. The long-term results are evil. It's going to be divorce, STDs, the destruction of your family. Your kids are going to be affected for it. You know, nobody gets through, no kid gets through divorce unscathed. You are going to destroy an aspect of their life. Your, your marriage is gone. Your finances are destroyed. Why? Because those few minutes of good, which Satan wanted you to do, ended up in long-term destruction. So evil is that which destroys in the long term. And Satan is perfectly fine with you feeling good in the short term as long as you, he uh, brings about destruction in the long term. And you can look at that in, in, in all kinds of ways. There, there are tons of things that are good in the short term. I mean, theft, you steal something. Well, it seems good in the short term because you're, you're, you're getting extra money or, you're, or whatever it is you've stolen. But in the long term, it's not going to work out because you're going to get caught. You're going to go to jail or get fined. Or look at drug use. Drug use is another great, perfect example of, of, of short-term good that's long-term evil. When you do a drug, it feels good. I mean, nobody does a drug because it makes you feel bad. I mean, nobody would shoot up heroin if, if the moment you put the heroin in your veins, you started feeling bad. No, you do heroin, you do cocaine, you do crack, you do marijuana or whatever your, your drug of choice is because it makes you feel good in the short term. The problem is the long term is evil. It's going to be addiction. It's going to be destruction of your finances. It's going to be destruction of your health, of your family. That's long term evil. And that's what Satan tempts you to. Satan never tempts you to do something that's going to be immediately evil because no one would do it. Satan's never going to attempt to want to say, hey, you know what, go and, and, and put yourself in jail. No, he's not going to do that. What, he, what, he, what he'll do, tempt you to do is go steal something, which will give you short-term pleasure and long-term destruction in jail. He's not going to say, hey, you know what, go destroy your marriage. No, but he's going to tell you to go have an affair, which feels good in the short term and will destroy your marriage in the long term. He's not going to tell you, hey, you know what, go make yourself sick and give away all your money. He's not going to tell you to do that, but he will tell you to do drugs in the short term because that will end up in all that long-term destruction. Okay, so I think I've been pretty thorough here, hopefully, and you understand the true, the non-contradictory objective definition of good and evil. Good is that which creates in the long term. Evil is that which destroys in the long term. And if you take those definitions and plug them into all the places in the Bible where it says good and evil, again, excluding necessarily of Isaiah 45, 7, because you, you really need to understand that that um, is talking about short-term destruction in that case. But if you plug it in to the Bible, you will find out that those definitions fit really well. So before we end this podcast, I want to talk for a few minutes about something that will lead us into the next podcast, and that is the idea of duality or dualism. The reason I am bringing it up is because it is a philosophy. Dualism is a philosophy that is embraced by some very powerful, influential people in the world. And at the risk of getting too conspiratorial um, with you, I, I, I think we could still all acknowledge whether or not you're a conspiracy theorist. And I, I kind of dabble in looking into certain conspiracies because I find them fascinating and some of them ring true. But I think we can all acknowledge that behind the scenes, there are some very powerful people who have a great deal of influence over our world. Whether or not you want to give them some of the proper names that they have, like you know Illuminati, Freemasons, and all these different folks, we know they exist. How do I know they exist? Even if you're not a fringe tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist, there are folks who have gone on on uh, live TV, on, on air, in public, and publicly admitted they were part of these societies. We've had two presidents that were part of a secret society called Skull and Bones. George um, George H.W. Bush 
and his, his son, George W. Bush. They both are members of the Skull and Bone Society, and, and I believe it's in is it Princeton or Yale, I forget which one. But that is admittedly a secret society. They we don't you can't just walk up to them and say, you know, I want, I want to join your society. No, they, they have to recruit you into it. And they and you don't know what goes on behind those closed doors. In fact, during his uh, uh, second reelection, during his reelection campaign, George W. Bush is running against John Kerry. They were both members of the Skull and Bones. And when they were asked about it on air, they admitted they were members of this organization. And they both said, we can't tell you what goes on. So that's kind of odd to me. I I I. I I don't know why the media didn't press them more on that to find out, hey, you know, should we be comfortable turning the reins of this country or the presidency over to someone who belongs to a society that we can't know anything about? We don't. What what are you guys talking about in your secret meetings? But the point is that they exist. We know they exist. And there are tons of them. There is the Trilateral Commission, the the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberger Group, the Club of Rome. There, There are all of them. There, there are tons of them out there, and they are all consist of very influential people. And again, this isn't just conspiratorial stuff. It's it's on it's in public record. Our State Department, our government in in D.C. is full of people who are members of these societies. Like there are skull and bonesmen all disproportionately in the State Department. That's not a something that, that I've pulled out of my tinfoil hat. It's actually true. It's verifiable. And which tells me that these people have a lot of influence. I mean, they're pretty rich, powerful folk. And if you're a Christian, even if you don't believe that there are any human beings who are controlling things or have any have this influence behind closed doors, if you're a Christian, you have to at least acknowledge that there is one major force that the Bible says has a great deal of control behind the scenes, and that is Satan. Satan is called the God, little g, or the prince of this age. He is the current, he has legal ownership title of the of this earth. Now, he got that title from Adam, and we'll talk about how, how when Adam turned that over to him when he, during original sin. And we also know, thankfully, that um, Jesus took that back from him at the cross, and we'll talk about that down the road a bit as well. But as of right now, until Jesus comes back and claims the, the title deed to the earth, Satan has, that, he has a title. He has that legal influence over the earth. So, and we don't see Satan. We don't, he, you know, he's not on TV, unless you think of Bill Maher. That might be Satan. I'm kidding. I doubt Bill Maher saying he's not smart enough. But the point is that we don't see him, but we know he has great influence. He's influencing people. So how does it get, get to, to dualism? Dualism is a philosophy that a lot of these folks in these shadowy backroom organizations subscribe to. What does dualism say? Dualism says or reports that we need both sides in balance in, in order to function. In other words, we need light and darkness. Darkness can't exist without light. Light can't exist without darkness. To say the same thing about good and evil. That good can't exist without evil, and that evil can't exist without good. Therefore, we need to have both good and evil. We just need to have them in balance. We don't need to eliminate evil. We don't need to eliminate darkness. We need them. We just need to balance them out. And of course, that's very convenient for the evil people because they're basically saying, hey, we need to be here. You can't get rid of, you shouldn't get rid of us. We need balance. But is that true? Well, it actually isn't. We, we don't need evil. We don't need darkness. Good and light and, and order and heat and all those things can exist without their opposites. Good can exist without evil. But that brings us to something I want to talk about in the next podcast. And that is the question of, does God need evil? And before you answer quickly, think about something. What is the entire narrative of the Bible about? Once you get past Genesis 3, the entire narrative of the Bible is really the redemption of man. That's what everything is about. 
from the time of original sin into the end of the book of Revelation, the entire purpose of the Bible is God redeeming man, be it through Abraham, through Israel, through Jesus, through the Christian life, through salvation. All these things are there to redeem man. 99% of the Bible is about the redemption of man. But man would need to be redeemed if there was no evil, right? I mean, God is the hero of the Bible. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, they are the heroes. They're the ones who save us from ourselves, save us from destruction, from death. But if there was no evil, then there would never be need there, there would never be any need for our redemption. There wouldn't be any need for us to be saved. So doesn't God technically need evil? Didn't he need for man to fall? Didn't he need Satan to tempt man to to fall from grace and to commit original sin in order for God to have his the, the story that we're that, that we live out, that we've been living out for all of human history? Didn't God need that evil in order to create the greater good? It's, I think it's actually a good question. And we will address it in the next episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. So uh, thank you for listening. We're about at the half hour mark. So again, so thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please leave me your comments and your questions. I'd love to hear them. Make sure you subscribe to faithbyreason.net. It's right at the top it's at the top right navigation bar. You can put in your email there and you'll get these new podcasts and blog posts whenever they come out. Um, follow me on social media. And I will talk to you again next week when we'll discuss whether or not God really needs evil in order for his plan to come into fruition.